Hello, welcome to season two of Wampum Codes, a podcast where I feature cool indigenous people using technology in creative and cool ways to make a positive change in their communities. This season, we have some new formats. We'll be doing live streams, on location episodes, updates on intergalactic projects, and much, much more. I'm your host, Amelia Winger Bearskin from the Seneca Cayuga Nation of Oklahoma, Deer Clan. Yahweh for joining. Today we have one of those live streaming sets, so I'll let all of my awesome guests introduce themselves. Hi everyone, my name is Maribo Fatunde. I am uh, a writer and um, I guess what some might call a futurist, but you know, I just kind of call a thing. Um, and uh, a friend of Amelia's, and really excited to be here and uh, share some some ravings with you. So thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much for coming. And we have another person on here, which is Eamon. He's uh, not sharing his camera, but playing some music. So maybe you want to play something for us and say hi, Eamon. What up, yo? How's it going? <laughs> um, no, I'm trying to share the camera, but it keeps saying that it lost it loses touch with like can you see this no oh wait yes i see you hello but then you're frozen but then see everyone got a quick glimpse of what what you're about that's, yep. that's good that's who you are that's what you're about lately Eamon always has a guitar strapped to him at all times even as he's doing other tasks and he'll be like you know one arm at a timing it so he's just always always with the guitar so thanks for bringing uh your guitar not that you had a choice i think you're connected so um that's awesome you like to have some vibe shifts, you know, for your day. So well, thanks for that. You no, know, an instrument is like a deep vibe shift. I've been yeah. noticing, um, especially since like I'm I'm working on a treatment with uh, with a musician main character and I'm like, I've forgotten what it feels like to have that relationship with an object. Yeah. It becomes like an appendage, you know? Yeah. yeah, it's pretty good. So how come we can hear your music and also still talk? You know, we, I, we sound check. I'll deal with this later. I'll deal with this later. Must I'm, be hosting <laughs> privileges. Yeah, something like that. I just have it turned down really low on um on Ableton. You know, got like my little soft pads. Mm -hmm. Trying to be vibey, you know, vibe shift for your day. Um, me and Madabo right before the stream, we're talking about we're talking about what kind of streams we like to watch. I haven't found my stream that I love to watch, which is why I thought I'd try to create my own. That's what I do when I like an idea of something but haven't found my i'm not like yet a fan i try to make it myself and be like what would i like to do what would i like to vibe with and listen to and um this past week we've been talking a little bit about Madabo coming on and he has some quotes from a book that we're going to be sharing on today's vibe trip i read some of them to Eamon last night we read some of them at a party that we were at on sunday or was it saturday i don't remember now <laughs> Saturday, I think. And we were all kind of talking about what they meant. Would you like to talk to us a little bit about what this book is, maybe before we dive into some of the quotes? Or should we just look at the text and then talk more about where it comes from? Oh, can't hear you. <laughs> Wait, did I mute you? <laughs> no. I muted myself. Okay. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm happy to give some context. So um, this, this book is called Prophetic Culture by Federico Campagna. Um, he's a, sort of an anarchist philosopher, um, a scholar of religion as well, and um, and I'll I'll try to give uh, I'll 
try to give his argument uh, a good showing here. But um, I think the crux of the argument is that um, is that the the meta narrative of uh, of Western civilization is um, has reached the end of its usefulness. Um, we are living in an accelerated and somewhat um, you know and somewhat apocalyptic age, and that um, and that human history has actually like rather thick tolerances for this, um, and so there are forms of culture. Right, the uh, Campania sort of argues, right, that there are civilizations that are uh, intermediary civilizations. So he calls them adolescent civil civilizations. Um, and these are the ones that are, these are post-apocalyptic civilizations. So if you think about, you know, Europe in the Middle Ages um, had lost, you know, a, so much of the information from antiquity and was just sort of like roaming around, finding little scraps of it and trying to rebuild, right, the idea of a civilization out of it. Um, and so um, Campania's argument um, to a large degree is one, this way of worlding is, is near its end, or at least it, it's beneficial to us perhaps to live as though um, this, this civilization has already collapsed. And uh, he argues that for cultural workers, the clearest target audience is that adolescent culture that's going to come after us, right? So like, what do we have to offer? Um, the civilizations that will survive us um, and that will, you know, that will have to build a new method of worlding, um, which is what he calls, you know, all of the, you know, all of the small acts and the understandings that it takes for us to, you know, hold a civilization consistent, you know, between ourselves. Um, and so he says that essentially the, the greatest gift Right, the highest work um, for somebody in this civilization is to be working for those people on the other side of the collapse of our civilization, um, and uh, you know it's something I found really compelling. Um, and he he describes that offering as what he calls a tetrapharmakos, um, which is uh, you know a sort of fourfold medicine, um, you know, and this is you know something he describes through archetypes, right? So he takes the archetype of the metaphysician. So if you think of, you know, something that makes hard distinctions, something that wants to study things sort of in isolation, um, but you think very much about sort of, um, uh, you know, like scientific realism of, you know, Western society, rationalism, et cetera. Um, so that's sort of like the metaphysician. Then there's the shaman that sort of walks between worlds, right? Um, uh, for the benefit of both, um, but the idea that they can sort of like cross this uh cross this die off of you know sort of more mystical different time you know of occult um and, and other types of knowledges um and then there's the mystic who is more devoted to this other side than to this world right um and then what he calls the prophet that archetype is sort of a um is sort of a substrate that sort of binds and holds the the other three and would allow one to move through sort of all of those different modes of worlding um, as uh, like rather fluidly, right? And that this, you know, this final archetype, that of the prophet and what he calls prophetic culture is, um, you know, something that is both mutable and stable enough to perhaps begin building, you know, another culture on, or at least to, you know, begin speaking into it. 
Um, and so uh, he goes through, you know, histories of different religious traditions and their experiences of, um, you know, their descriptions of prophecy and things like that, as well as, you know, different, uh, as well as different intellectual systems, right? And thinking about like, well, um, what does it mean? You know, what are the ad adolescent cultures within these and how do, um, you know, how do people survive the end of a paradigm? Um, I had a couple of questions came out. Hi, Martha. Martha's just joined Hello. our train. This is Martha Bearskin. Do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Hi, everyone. I'm Martha Bearskin. Um, I am a computer scientist. I work at the USGS and I work in water data. Yeah, well, we're talking a lot about uh, this amazing book. Would you say again the, the title one of us for a few who may be just joining? Yeah, so it's by Federico Campagna. That's spelled it like in Italian. So C A M P A G N A. Um, and uh, and the book title is Prophetic Culture. The subtitle is uh, Recreation for Adolescence. Amazing. So I had a couple questions, uh, you know, that came up as you were discussing it. First, my first thought was, I can't think almost of any science fiction book that I've read, maybe maybe ever, that doesn't contain the archetypes that you were describing, right? Like it seems like such a mm -hmm. hallmark of science fiction. Am I? Is it unique to science fiction, or would you say that those types of archetypes that he describes move throughout all fiction? But for me, it really resonated specifically around science fiction. Um, and then the second question I had was, uh, Eamon asked this to me last night, where he said, "What is worlding?" And I said, "Oh, that's world building." But then I thought maybe that's a very <laughs> reductive way of saying it. So I'd love to know what, what you define worlding to be. And then also, what do you think about it in relationship to science fiction? Um, thank you. Um, this is, uh, this is perfect. Uh, you know, I've got another 20 minute rant on the way. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, so to your first question, how is it related to science fiction? I think it is, I think the archetypes probably exist beyond science fiction, certainly. Um, you know, so especially, you know, fantasy, um, I think also like just if you look at religious traditions, right, um, there are, you know, you, you know, reading the Sufi mystics, right, is, is like all tied up in that world. Um, and I think for some of the other, you know, some of the other um, knowledge systems, so for instance, the shaman, there's not as much that's recorded, right, because like many of these are coming from oral traditions. I think more of it is sort of being surfaced now, but quite often you get sort of this regurgitated Western version of them. Um, but I do see uh, these archetypes across many different narrative traditions and especially um, especially esoteric traditions. I would say uh, also just any, you know, I see them, I see them in a lot of stand-up comedy, right? Like in, in ways like any art form where you're, vocal performance or your, um, you know, or your arc is like trying to pierce a certain thing. If you think about the traditional, um, the traditional hero's journey, right? You dip into that underworld, right? Um, and these archetypes are all a different stance kind of towards that underworld. Um, and so, you have to dig to find it, you know, sometimes in secular society, but um, I think it's always there on some level. Um, to your second question. Um, to your second question, what is worlding? I think it's complicated. So for me, like to me, this, this is the question that brought me to this book really. Um, so I've been, you know, working, you know, um, 
in you know both in creative spaces and corporate spaces and and sort of non-aligned spaces um which i think would automatically align them more with creativity in some ways um but as you know helping people like through world building exercises right um and i think there's a form of there's a form of deep cruelty associated with that when you sort of create this space for people to dream into and then you deposit them back into a world in which that's you know not possible and so i think one form of worlding is skepticism right is um is sort of the the load-bearing you know structures of um you know scientific rationalism of uh of understanding and so there's a worlding going on there that says that is too far beyond the pale that has not you know served these certain proofs that has not um you know that's not within the realm of discussion if we think about capitalist realism right that is also a form of worlding to say um you know uh you know uh to say that there's it's you know uh frederick jameson is often quoted as this saying you know that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism and i think that's um i think that's probably partially true but what is even harder to my to my mind than imagining beyond capitalism is imagining the transition from capitalism to something else um and i think every form of worlding is it is the self-interested aspect of society it is the um the ways in which we perpetuate right um the systems that we live within right um and it it is i would say i would say it's like the cornerstone of our complicity in a lot of ways right but there are also sort of counter public counter there are not counter revolutionary but like revolutionary forms forms of worlding like ones that move us beyond sort of what this world has allowed us the horizons that this world has held for us right um and so you could imagine forms of worlding one um like campania is suggesting that say this are this i am already dead to this civilization right and i am sort of in this weird liminal space from which everything is a little bit ridiculous and everything is a little bit sort of uh corrosive and unholy right and it's just like uh, um and you know from that perspective perhaps it is be it is possible to begin the new worlding and i think that's his argument is sort of prophetic culture is that thing that is a step outside of all these different modes of worlding and gesturing towards a new one thank you for that description i really appreciate that um the other day I was talking about science fiction with my my class because I teach a class called AI plus art science fiction. So we look at how AI affects fiction and art and science. Um, and I asked them to think of a science fiction story that had AI in it. And so that we all like did this mentee and we're like popping up word cloud on screen and, you know, all these different you know sci-fi books, as many as they could think of, like just every single one you've ever read or even heard of, right, <laughs> that it has AI in it. <clears throat> and um then I said, how many of these is AI good? You know, just like in any way you would describe good or, or like ascribe good values, like did, did good, <laughs> is good, made good, helped, you know? And um, only one girl had an answer for her, her book. Um, she said that in this book, the AI was bad and then they convinced it to become good by the end. Like a group of teenagers actually thinking of teenagers. <laughs> Um, you know, convince the AI to actually try to help kids rather than harm them. 
And it was about, I guess, I think the AI was bullying the, the children and then the, the children got together and taught it what, what the values that they had was and it became something that would like help them. Um, and I thought, well, it's kind of odd that we cannot imagine a future where AI is good and yet we're building it. No one's saying stop, no one's slowing down, no one's, you know, like the, the, the wheels are, are, are moving and um, we are on this uh, very high speed chase to the next AI innovation. And yet it's odd that there's only one book. And even in that book, the AI was bad, <laughs> had to be like convinced to be good. So I thought that was very odd if we can't imagine even in our most spectacular viewpoints, that it could be good. Um, why are we making it all? So I don't know. We all kind of talked about that. Like how how can we can't imagine a world in which it would be helpful? Or uh, some some students felt like maybe that's not the role of science fiction. Science fiction is always a cautionary tale. What do you think mm. about that? Um, so a few things. The first is a reaction that's just a recognition, really, of an argument that. Um, Louis Chudesoke uh, made. He's a he's a liter literature professor at I think Boston University at this point. Um, but he uh, he looks to he looks to AI as this new this new paroxysm of the argument about what like what's admissible as human and what is it like okay to give rights to right um that starts with humans like <laughs> you know um especially you know with our uh, legal code base but um so um so he looks at sort of uh he looks at this this in some ways prophetic idea of the singularity as a um as sort of a, a third reconstruction right like that we are you know fighting between you know the you know, we're, we're fighting between these two constitutions, right? One of which is like trying to be imposed on the other one post hoc, right? Which is like, oh no, like actually people deserve rights. <laughs> Whereas the first one's just like, no, really, we just, we're, we're ready to do the England thing for ourselves, right? Um, and then now, you know, we're asking ourselves the questions, right? Like if we are able to make these other sentences, right? Um, how do we, how, you know, how do we justify enslaving them? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, and so uh, and so one reason, right, the, that the AI is always bad is that we imagine the AI is always oppressed, <laughs> like um, and and like bent to our will, right, in some way. Um, we also imagine it as sentient, somewhat like we will be, or something somewhat like we are, um, which may never be true, but we we can't tell that yet. Um, so I have that reaction. Um, if I were to think about what um about what Campania might say is that there is the there is the dominance of the um there's the dominance of the metaphysician right um so if you were, you would take like a shamanistic view towards AI then um perhaps AI are the beings right native to the digital plane that we have opened doors to recently right um in, in part by, uh, you know, in part by bending rocks and making them think, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, and you know, I think there's another there's another um, there's another perspective on this, which is that you know, these are these are ancestral right relations, right? Um, the uh, you know, the cobalt right inside these machines, the copper, the you know, the coltan right are 
you know, there are people with, you know, with ancestral relations to them, um, which uh, I don't know exactly what to do with, frankly, <laughs> with that shamanic uh, perspective so much. Um, and then there's, you know, I think the singularity probably probably moves this and nudges this into the mystical realm of, of like, well, that this is how we transcend flesh, right? Um, and, uh, and, you know, I think perhaps for him, a, uh, a, for him, a prophetic take on the AI thing is just like, well, um, It's very complex. I want to say that there's like I want to say that there's there's a way to hold all three perspectives, right? And that there are there's that which is that there's that which is is now somehow due, right? Uh, to them, um, there is that which is somehow already dead to them, right? There is not much um, there's not much cementing semantic, like we are freaking out because these machines are, are getting close to um i guess semantic uh operations right <laughs> um, and and at the end of the day these things mean nothing to them right um and and we are trying to find ways to make them meaningful right and so there's that sort of like wry comedic stance of just like all right, whatever um <laughs> and i think there's also the uh there's also the, um, you know, there's also that shamanic view of like, okay, well, we are going to be in interrelation with these, you know, from now on. Um, and so what I think the question he might ask is like, what is the, what is the relation of a being, of somebody who discovers AI, right? Um, after the end of our civilization, right? Somebody who discovers this tool, what are the uses they might put it to? What are the uses they might require of it, right? And how absent all of these relations that we've set up around it, might it be freed, right, for a different use? Um, but that's my first take on that. So uh, we can keep revising. Yeah, no, that's really great. It, I, I had a journalist uh, call me a couple of days ago to ask about AI and hands, right? Like, so for those who aren't uh, familiar, uh, AI is notoriously horrible at drawing hands. Um, we can try it right now. We like to kind of mess around with mid journey here. Do you want, do you want to try to give it a prompt to see what kind of hands it comes up with? Let me try, <laughs> let me try to share here. Um, let's see, share my screen. Let's see, here we go. Um, anyone have a good prompt for hands? <laughs> For sketching hands. For um, sketching hands. Dang. Uh, usually it's just kind of like um, holding, like I'll use the word holding or um, yeah, or, sh or we could even say shaking hands. Like maybe it could be, let's get some descriptor words here. So like. Um, what is it holding? Yeah. Yeah. What is it holding? So we could be like um, two women holding. <laughs> what should they be holding? Um, um holding a snow globe um and inside the snow globe is or or, or a theme maybe we'll say street photography i like that street photography 90s <laughs> okay let's see what happens oh okay i didn't even do it in the right prompt typical amelia um so they 
<laughs> the reporter called to to say, uh, what what is up with this hands? Like, why can't AI draw hands um, that that looks normal? And you know, we we talked a lot about uh, you know Lynette and and very early uh, image recognition algorithms that were used to um, devise characters that were written by humans rather than in ASCII characters, right? And we talked about the way in which it's reconstructing images based on images rather than looking at what is embodied by humans that oftentimes if there's a painting of me like this you know my hand doesn't really look like this but it looks like that in the painting because it's like holding on to something or if it's like this it looks like a hand looks like this but hands really are these separate articulations so let's see let's see what <laughs> let's see what we got here um that's kind of terrifying do you see the hands <laughs> but yeah nothing that yeah. can be a like, whole hand right one two three four five six seven on one hand one two three four five mm. six on the other this one is just like hands <laughs> of one <laughs> i don't know that one is interesting kind of like a muppet muppet hands and there's just one hand that was kind of yes. like the most realistic one yeah yeah you ask it to draw a single human hand oh yeah let's try that a single human hand it probably would will do that probably will be able to do that yeah. it's usually when it's like holding like i have this image of it i said mm. i, I see it with my own image and then i said you know a woman holding a border collie and it just made it so the border collie was like melting over my arm <laughs> <laughs> like it was amazing oh that's crazy um but i started thinking about hands because Eamon was like well are hands important in art and um when you're in art school you know you're taught to draw your hand obviously mc escher has a million studies of the hand drawing the hand leonardo da vinci has incredible studies of drawing the hand it's kind of considered this thing that if you can like you're not an artist if you can't try to draw a hand obviously that's not true but it's something that we're encouraged to do like drawing the the tool that we use to make art drawing this expression of what it is to have art um and then i said well as this is rendering maybe i will stop sharing and share another window here so i started kind of deep diving um into i'll show you a tab here hands in art so i started just looking at every type of article i could find about hands and this one is about the earliest images of these hands um are about 9,500 years old, and the oldest images of these hands are 14,000 years old. This is an image of hands that is the absolutely oldest image that a Homo sapien has ever made that we have found in Indonesia, 40,000 years old of a hand. Um, and then it kind of goes through all these different ways in which hands are important. Obviously, we think of the Sistine Chapel, the most recognizable <laughs> moment of Michelangelo's creation is the, the two hands. And I, I just started thinking, like, is this its hands, right? Or is this its expression of hands? The, maybe that is what the hands of AI look like. I don't know. I'm just like, kind of got got very obsessed with hands after this conversation with this reporter. So um, let's see what, what it came up with here. Um, oh, man. That's terrifying, Amen. Actually, I don't think it's quite rendered yet. Okay, there it is. There it is. There's very, the yeah. Oh, I don't like oh. anything about it. I like it. <laughs> I mean, the one on the bottom left, it looks like a heart. <laughs> it looks, oh my it's God, that's like totally. 
a hand is almost definitely like a zombie hand 100 percent a zombie hand also only four fingers again are any of them yeah. correct one two, no it's like stigmata it is like a stigmata and yeah. also has an extra finger on its pinky can i can i get a a copy of this one in the top oh, left of course, of course. <laughs> i can and we can also um you can do this thing where that's you one right so we can upscale it to give you a bigger version of it. Then we can also give you, you said the upper left one. Is that what you said? Yeah, the upper left, the one with the deep stigmata. Yeah. And then I'm going to, I'm going to V1 it too. So we can see if it comes up with another version. So you can kind of like upscale it and then get another version. We'll just see. I'm happy to send it to you though. But it, yeah. Um, hands. So I was kind of like, I mean, I, I know from like a technological point of view what why it, it can't make hands. But then I started thinking more from a philosophical point of view. Um, what 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 if this is it's it's hands? <laughs> you know, like what if, ooh, there it is with variations. It kind of got rid of the stigmata in this one, but now it has like more of a fate line or like yeah. palmistry, right? <clears throat> That's wild. That's <laughs> we always like to play this game just because <clears throat> I don't know, kind of can, we can talk and look at, at the same time. But um what are your some what are some of your thoughts about hands? Oh, go for it, Martha. <laughs> oh, I was just thinking, so since you were talking about like art and everybody has to learn how to draw hands and it's like notoriously the hardest thing to learn how to draw, I guess this is just like true for AI as well. It's the hardest thing to draw. It's just like learning how to draw hands. And right now we're just keep giving it like an F or like, no, try, <laughs> like, try again. Although it's an F in such a different way than an art student would be. I used to teach drawing and no student would ever give it an extra finger. <laughs> I mean, maybe, but maybe. <laughs> I mean, I saw some really, right? Like it can have all the wrinkles in the hands and all this, like whatever, but it can't decide how many fingers to have. Or what size the nail goes on. AI is just this like reflection of us because it's only what we can teach it. So we're also not very good at teaching it how to draw hands, clearly. I think hands are also troublesome. Like, they're just, like, all constantly moving. I think about, like, you know, people are always telling you, don't get tattoos on your hands. They're going to fade so fast. You do too much with your hands. You wash them too much. Like, mm-hmm. and I think this aspect of, like, um, well, I mean, for one, I think it's it's interesting in that, like, you know, um, people make a lot of noise about the master's tools. And, you know, what if you just didn't have hands? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Etc. Um, but uh, you know, I think less tongue in cheek. Just this this idea that um, you know, replication is hard <laughs> and like manual, like just like you know, manual dexterity, right? Is like uh, is is really hard to replicate and really complicated, but also just like troublesome, right? Because it's yeah. so varied, and then also like it is almost invisible to us, right? Like, I think, you know, what are the lengths one would have to go to today, like to get, um, you know, to get a still life or something, of just somebody doing something with their hands, like, you know, outside of a phone, right? Like, I think just like these scenes that we are going to depict are, are you know, sort of less varied over time in a way. 
um and uh and yeah so perhaps it's not um perhaps it's not like perhaps it's something like really dumb that's just like i just don't get a chance to snap a photo of hands very often um but yeah yeah <clears throat> yeah maybe hands are just like especially haunted <laughs> i mean these ones are especially haunted right. that's for sure they're like ghostly white they all look kind of like a corpse um which is interesting because i wonder if it's pulling a lot from those early you know all of those images that leonardo da vinci did of like the thousands of hands that he drew were all um pencil on paper and so i wonder if it's like taking that you know the pencil on paper and then rendering it in real realism it's so it be, i don't know like why is it so ghostly white what is up with that <laughs> i don't know it's weird there's just a lot of images of like zombie hands coming out of the you know mm. yeah like ground or something posters and yeah. we discovered that Monaco, when we were um when we were trying to get it to generate images of water that a lot of them were like ominous and scary and terrifying and horror and even though we were just like water <laughs> like that thing we all love and need to live in yeah. is central to our planet and like so that was interesting that a lot of it was like very scary ominous uh imagery yeah. um apparently hands are in that camp too hands and water you know <laughs> yeah the so that's interesting so campania has like a take on on sort of the grotesque nature of um the grotesque na nature of uh i guess what he calls prophetic culture but just like this like you, you taking a step back from society in a way like forces you to to see all the deformations that it requires and then also like put you back in your body in a way um and uh i haven't read back to in a while but like the idea of the grotesque as that which you know reminds you that you're an animal in a way and also like disfigures like modernism um i think is is also a some part of his argument now how mid-journey <laughs> yeah it's that um i think maybe we've just made one too many movie posters yeah um, probably <laughs> Eamon has a famous quadrant Eamon, do you want to talk about your quadrant i don't know if i'm like busting you in the middle of what, whatever you're doing but um, i'll be right back i need to adjust my shade yeah 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 um yeah the quadrant does involve the grotesque um funny i have i have my little book about the grotesque right next to me right now but um the quadrant is a quadrant not so much of grotesque grotesquity grotesqueness but of let's call it paranormal uh phenomena like x files it's a way of classifying x files level phenomena so um it's like a classic political quadrant style you know two axis diagram one axis is between uh, aliens and witches. That's the y-axis. And then the other axis is between ghosts and monsters. So the claim is that you can locate any paranormal, spooky type, pop cultural, or just folk cultural figure. You can locate them on, on this plane somewhere. 
and the kids love it. They have a great time with it. I want to try to draw this as your as your, do you have an image of it? Otherwise, I'm just going to draw it in Google Slides. See if I can get like a. Uh, I mean, yeah, the image I have of it is just drawn in Google Slides. So, <laughs> well, I, if you have one, find yeah, it. Share. If I can share, it. I'm having a hard time with images on my phone, but maybe I can like send you the link because um, I have versions of it that students have actually tried to fill out. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, let's let's fill this out here. Let yeah. me stop sharing this. I'm going to sh share another one. Um, See, we'll have our Chrome tab. I have this untitled presentation, right? This is this is my very bad quadrant right now. Um, so <laughs> say this again. So which is at the top here is uh bottom is witches, yeah. Bottom is witches. Well, truly the bottom is um earthly. The earthly is at the bottom. Right. Oh, right, right. The earthly. And the what's the best way to share this with you? I'm, I'm can you see it online? I'm just making it as we talk. Is it showing up? Yeah, that's exactly that's what it's like. Yeah, I'm making it as you're saying it, Amy. <laughs> What's the next one? <laughs> the top is the extraterrestrial. Okay. On the left side of the x-axis is, I just have the word disembodied. And then on the all the way to the right side of the x-axis it says excessively embodied there's an excess of bodily stuff I'm putting very embodied <laughs> very embodied yeah 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 very so embodied. then that's the uh that's it and then if you want i can show you what the students have made it's pretty funny actually yeah 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 so i'll, I'll stop sharing and then you do you want to share or do you want to link it to me yeah why don't i link it to you oh yeah see. did you put it in the private chat oh yeah put it in the private chat anybody that has access to the link can view this so let me just i'm going to put in the chat the uh the whole link to it and then you can you can go and find where they've filled it out should go through soon yeah i'll put it in for everybody do you want everyone to have access to your full yeah that's fine thing? there's no <laughs> Protected information. Protected information. All right, here we go. We're putting it in the chat, everyone. This is from the the lecture I delivered called Hauntology. Shout to Mark Fisher. Amazing. Derrida. Okay, Hauntology. Um, let us know if you want to stop at any specific slide. I'm going to get to your um. So slide eleven is the thing that you just made. Yeah. Okay. Slide 16 is where the students had tried to fill in their their ideas about what should go where. Oh, I see. I like it. Hmm. The Borg are very disembodied. I feel like they're in I disagree with them. I feel like they're excessively embodied. They're stealing other people's bodies. Um the chupacabra though. I like I like that. I I twilight vampires. A mummy is dead in the middle. I didn't see that coming. Me neither. I didn't anticipate that. But it kind of makes sense because the mummy is like in this case of having a body, but it's so desiccated that it almost doesn't have, you know, it's like kind of a body, but it's like sort of, you know, in transition. What I realized from trying to fill this out on my own, I'm just like slotting things and, and they're like statically placed on here. When I did it with the students, I mean, you see all these arrows and stuff. It's because a lot of these phenomena are actually disturbing because 
they're moving between these categories in ways that are like uncomfortable to us. So like a zombie is definitely embodied, but it's moving. It's like moving away from its embodiedness as it progresses and sort of decays. So a lot of these are not as clear as I thought it was. I like how they put Satan in in below witches. I'm not sure why they did that. Hmm. Well, because don't isn't like I mean it depends on what culture you're in, but some cultures think witches work for Satan. So maybe they're closer to the earth or they're further away from I don't know. Yeah, that doesn't maybe they just figured he lives underground or something. Yeah, maybe it's like in terms of like gotta be the furthest from celestial he can be at this point. Yeah, because he's been explicitly cast out from the kingdom of heaven. But then part of what is disturbing to me about like UFOs, like think about X-Files, the aliens and X-Files. It Like they're disturbing not because they're not from Earth, but they're disturbing because they're not from the cosmology that has like a Western style great chain of being, right? They're totally alien from that. It's not that they're angels or something. It's that they're they don't we don't have categories to understand them in this sort of God to Satan hierarchy that we have in our culture, and that's like troubling. You know, it would be less troubling if it was like a Buffy the Vampire Slayer style demon. Um, at least I, that's my take on it. We recent me and Eamon recently watched Nope, which means we're like way behind everyone else. Like it took us a million years to watch I it. I watched it. You did? You did? Yeah. Have you seen it too, Monabo? Yeah, I've seen it. I mean, I, all my friends told me I should see it in the theaters with the loudest possible, like, you know, surround sound on the biggest possible screen. And yeah. I, I was like tried, but no one no one wanted to go with me. And then because everyone was like, it's gonna be too scary. It actually wasn't that scary. So I like feel like could have gone but like most yeah. of my friends were like it's gonna be too scary um yeah and i don't know how we feel about spoilers on climate lounge but i feel like that sh- that movie's been out so long we can just talk about it right like it's not like i mean it's like in netflix or whatever at this point right or hbo max <laughs> but yeah, i i liked it. it what was that so i think i had to rent it <laughs> oh, you had to rent it okay well i don't you know i feel like i i feel like if, if spoilers abound after this moment if you'd like to like mute us or something but yeah. Yeah. i i really liked um the fact that it took aliens into being an animal and really looking at how like the way we would feel about that alien is the same way we'd feel about a lot of animals where we don't super understand their motivations and we don't super understand um like they could be as smart as us or or a hundred times smarter than us, but the type of smartness is just so different that it that we have to find a way to um to communicate with it or in that case to to be able to survive it, right? So I thought that was I, I don't know. I don't for me I hadn't seen an alien film that was so similar to the way in which you'd you'd interact with an animal, but maybe I just haven't seen enough <laughs> films. What are your thoughts? I felt like that too. I really thought it was a really different and interesting take on uh, what what that like first contact uh, experience would be because we always, again, like go with this very violent um, idea. And even though that alien was, I mean, kind of violent, but it was violent in the way that an animal is violent. I mean, you expect a lion to like try to eat you, you know? (laughs) Um, I, yeah, I really liked that idea. And also like, 
I don't know. And the sadness that like, we already know how we treat animals. So we kind of already know how we're gonna, we would treat an animal that was even more like foreign to us. Yeah. Right. Or an animal that doesn't clearly serve any sort of like civilization level purpose. It's just scary. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm sure they'd figure out how to make it serve us somehow. (laughs) (laughs) After the first contact, right? Right, then they'll figure out like, oh, we can eat it. And then we all, I don't know, solved world hunger or something. (laughs) Or like, yeah, me and Martha watched the uh, Avatar, the way of the water, right? (laughs) How was that? I haven't. Oh, God. It was as bad and then worse than I thought it was going to be, which was pretty bad. like three and a half i think it's three and a half years long i think it's like possibly five yeah. years long um oh the actual yeah. runtime oh. yeah yeah but then <laughs> yeah i'm pretty sure it's like you you go in there and then you die and like you live a whole life watching that movie yeah. and you die yeah. and you come back and you're like thank god that was just a stupid movie i've had an experience <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah I mean, I Sundance just wrapped and I did the online version of Sundance and they had all of these shorts. Um, I'm obsessed with shorts. I love the shorts of Sundance. They're one of my favorite things. I mean, this year, my dear friend, Erica Tremblay, is Seneca Cayuga Nation from the Deer Clan, just like me and Martha. And she shot an entire feature film on our reservation. It was very fun to see like our tribal ids on screen and then like our they filmed it in front of our our uh like tribal council hall and like oh you know it's just amazing to kind of see these places like that's grove that's the river that's we went to that gas station name and we went there you know like that was really fun and um i got to make a vr piece like a game in 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 the world so that was really fun um but i got i also love seeing the shorts and there was this short called um um Claudio's song and I am obsessed with this one but it thinks a lot about the ways in which we remember um through time uh people's lives and they they kind of talk about um you know before the Gutenberg Bible and before printing press people mostly had oral tradition and before that there were even families that it was their job to keep through the family generation by generation the songs of um of history right and so they, you know, kind of goes into a little bit of a sci-fi universe that uh, <clears throat> eight-minute, excuse me, <coughs> that eight-minute short, it goes into this whole, um, in eight minutes, it takes you from that kind of history to what, what could be in a possible future, but it all does it a lot through a song. Um, so I've been thinking quite a bit about that, like what um, what are these imprints that we leave in in history? And so I think, I don't know, I thought a lot about that when I watched Nope as well, because mm. um, it, I often feel like the alien is also a maybe a metaphor for encountering the future and encountering ourselves as the future. And I, I took that alien as the future human. Like it was just like, Oh yeah, that's the future human, (laughs) you know, like that, that alien, even though it's violent and it's acting in this way, it's like, what if we evolved so far that we didn't even recognize ourselves? And that was our future kin. (laughs) We're like, Oh my gosh, it's just eating our like horses and terrifying us, you know, but what was that? I said, it just wanted to come home and that was a horrible idea. 
That was a really bad idea. <laughs> or tra travel back in time. It's like how we're all like, if you could travel to any time period, when would you want to travel? <laughs> and he's like, oh my God, remember that planet Earth? Let's go there. And then he's like, no, 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 no. I got stuck here. All they have to use horses. is insane. <laughs> You see the other aliens at the end, you know, with the, like at the other side of the portal with its tether, and it's just like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> they're like, oh, don't tell mom we did this. <laughs> I I liked how the anger of the um of the being in Nope was so relatable as an animal, like how. You know, if a wild animal sees you, the way they, they like stomp around and roar at you or yell at you and they're just kind of like, you watch out, don't bother me. But they're not, it's like a type of aggression, but it's more of like a hold, like I'm holding this space and go on. And I think we've all encountered like a mama deer. I encountered a mama deer the other day and she was with her three, uh, with three young tears and she just like stamps her foot at me like all right now <laughs> we're here you watch out and obviously deer are like very fragile and like you know human could hurt them but they they do that thing of like i'm aggressive but i'm just letting you know like back off we got babies here and you're like it's okay mother deer i'm gonna walk on this other path and you're gonna be fine but i liked that um recognizing that in the alien i was very sad that it died <laughs> but i also understand that was part of it too <laughs> I know, I was too. I was hoping it was like they would be friends. We would ride or at least a horse would be riding it or something. <laughs> oh my god. I think it was definitely a novel take on the UFO thing. I think um, I don't know. I, I Maybe my expectations were a little too high because I was just like this had too many jobs to do and uh yeah so while that was interesting i'd like the most compelling part of the film for me was the uh was the flashback to um i forget the character's name but the monkey rampage oh my oh my gosh yeah it was the only part of the movie i cried and i mean like i cried <laughs> that was tough. yeah that was um core of the film it's like well what's happening to this other you know animal um and yeah i don't know i don't know how to walk away from that still i'm just kind of like oh, okay and it's just showing like that's how these you know like animals including us react to fear um we can overreact to fear i mean we do it all the time we just we don't have like claws and things we have like guns um but we do it too and if we look at i don't know i just thought that was interesting to show that i don't know how when we're when we fear each other we're going to like have this bigger response just like an animal of course i really liked how i mean felt like the film many of his films are about film right or about the media representation and of course it starts with like Moybridge and then it like starts right at the beginning of film I feel like throughout the whole um all of Nope or like learning about the history of how film is used and especially that um cinematographer that does documentary on animals like that becomes a big part like how do we capture nature and the wild to tame it and to own it and to capture it into this um this format and uh oftentimes 
those people will live, you know, for a year with the lions or whatever to take take these images or do these documentaries. So I thought a lot about that, the history of um, film. And I think I felt like that was the same with this uh, short at Sundance called Claudio song, like that it was about like why why are we why we make art. We're imagining that this song will live forever in time, and yet I think in Claudio's song, they were asking the question, like, what if it's just really random who gets to be remembered throughout time? What if it's like these people that we think are, I don't know, like in the, in that case of Claudio's song, it was about an Instagram influencer that they kind of set up to be sort of a pathetic person, right? Like he's not, you know, that, like, he's not the greatest mind of our generation, but he is the one that the song gets remembered throughout all of time. And it's like, what, yeah, that is kind of maybe the remembrance that we also have could have been, what if, all of these amazing um, <laughs> luminaries were just like the Instagram influencers of their day and everyone else in their day was like, oh no, man, no, but they're like oh, so yeah. cringe. Like, they're, yeah. That one really, like that one's so cringe. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I liked the randomness of like, what if who yeah. we remember throughout time? I mean, we I think a lot of us think about decolonization and that yes a lot of the people who are thought of the great minds of their generation came from a western background and had you know certain privileges but what if <laughs> what if even then <laughs> they were all the random dumb ones too you know like the right. random like cringe ones of that of that moment too i don't know yeah they're the ones that couldn't find a job so they just like <laughs> sat at home and like wrote and about stuff and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but their dad paid for them to get published you know right. <laughs> babies all the way down <laughs> what was one of the most shocking things Eamon about your quadrant Eamon loves doing these quadrants but the most shocking thing yeah mm. I mean for me the most shocking thing after you made this is that students would come to my class and be like okay so I have a question professor like you know on the quadrant of like terrestrial <laughs> earth disembodied where do you think AI is and I'm like wait that's not even a real thing I even just like <laughs> Travis made that up when they were they made that up <laughs> oh it's gonna be a thing now um yeah definitely the most shocking thing about that is that students would ask me questions like in a very serious way about like I mean, so for instance, in the movie Poltergeist, like where, and I'm like, this isn't real. I made it up. It's not a real thing. And even if it, even if I wasn't just some random asshole, if like a very, you know, well-respected scholar, like some esteemed member of the Academy had made it up, it would still be made up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Somebody, all, all this shit is made up. So well, students uh, don't understand that that everything is is made up. And I have to say, if you're gonna make like a graph and highlight things, I mean, I'm gonna be like, yes, must be on the test, and it's a for sure thing. Stuff is screenshotted. Well, because I guess they thought they might be quizzed on it or something. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. That's you right be, there. If you can be quizzed on it, then it is real enough. For that. I mean, as real as anything else that. What is reality? This I mean, is I, your I, final right here. Can you yeah. fill out the quadrant thing <laughs> accurately? Accurately. That's terrible. Well, yeah. I mean, werewolves in the wrong spot again. God damn it. I say Satan is excessively embodied, and I'm just going to say that right now. I disagree with it being earthly. All right. Okay. <laughs> Belongs further to the right, in your opinion. 
yeah like i think the most excessively embodied right because like satan wants like all of the souls and wants to like embody and take over everyone to like do bad things or whatever and Hmm. half of his danger is his carnality i mean we gotta like yeah yeah i mean this is the other thing too is that every i mean I, i wasn't that surprised by this but i was surprised to see how it worked out all of these creatures or or figures from pop culture mythology whatever they don't have just one dimension to them like satan has this dimension where yeah he is very like his carnality is a big part of it he also has this dimension where he can kind of like seemingly teleport around or uh shapeshift or um you know make these highly intellectual arguments to tempt you into sin or play the fiddle like really really well (laughs) it's two different like dimensions to the same figure so it's like you can you can isolate anyone at any point here but that doesn't capture their entire sort of maybe this quadrant thing is sort of not useful i don't know what (laughs) it was supposed to have to begin with it's pretty useful it might not yeah it helps you like isolate which dimensions of the character you want to talk about but it doesn't really fully describe any of these but i think i think it is helpful to show students how random these constructs can be and then have them take them seriously because then i usually also try to get them to make them right like now you make your quadrant now you make your system diagram of what um you know i use the language of software architecture to have them build story worlds for their video games because it will connect to software architecture very quickly. Um, but then you do end up with these incredible diagrams of something that is as complex as any cybernetic makeup of a, a city electrical grid that is all about, you know, a fan fiction of Harry Potter or something, right? Like they they go, they go hard and they figure it out. And then it does make sense because when you're building a game, it gets to software eventually, right? But mm-hmm. I try to teach them that these things are made up because then they can make them up better. <laughs> like, like you can, you also, or or to like look at things like simulation theory and say, yeah, I mean that was just a thought experiment. Like you could have a different thought about that. <laughs> you know? Yeah, but, I mean, what, yeah. it's supposed to be a demonstration of structural logic. Like help yeah. them think abstractly, help them think structurally, and demonstrate with some stuff that's pretty low stakes that they're already familiar with like how do you how do you map out like a conceptual terrain an abstract terrain with some degree of rigor even if it's just about like you know brendan fraser movies from the 90s or whatever totally totally well thanks for sharing your um <laughs> your, your grid with us oh, yeah thank I, you i think i think people like being able to visualize um, our understanding. Like we don't have a lot of embodied ways to look in 3D space to understand things. It's usually words or numbers and uh, code if it's like people like me and Martha, right? So having these, and coders love to make graphs. Like we love having graph outputs (laughs) of things because even if it's like we understand it in code, we love to like watch and look for some node based graphs uh, about what we're doing, right? So yeah, I think that's really cool. Did you have any quotes you wanted to share with us, um, Manabo, uh, from from the book? I know you had collected a bunch of them, and I was reading a lot of them um, last night with Eamon. Yeah, one that I was thinking about that's on Worlding that um, I just found is uh, 
Another interesting sub. Let me try this. I don't want to share screen. I don't want to share a thing on my screen. I want to share a thing from this window that looks like that. Are we seeing things? Yep. One second. I think I got it. Oops. There we go. Oh, yep. Yep. It's it's there. awesome. Um, so this first quote is, um, I think, to your, to perhaps better answer the question of like, what is worlding? At least I thought maybe, maybe that's not. No, it is. Okay. Uh, yeah. So this first one um, is, uh, we owe aesthetics the substance of our days and the metaphysics that we adopt to dissect them. And since aesthetics um, expresses itself through worlding, it endows this activity with the status of the ultimate ancestor of all tools. Like an ancestor, the process of worlding demands to be acknowledged, and like a tool, it requires users to recognize its agency and to follow its inner rules. Um, and so I thought that, um, and, and so for instance, if we take the example of the grid there, right, is, is that that is um, externalizing a certain process of worlding that we that we undertake when we create our monsters for our narratives, or um, or even just a taxology of uh, of pre-existing monsters. Um, and I think like one thing that's pretty interesting about that is that it is this sort of like metaphysician's construct that allows you to like describe things that are a bit more um, a bit more distributive uh, across um, across those planes. And I think also this idea that like it is the it is there's something about the transgression about of boundaries right um and that like you have um this this line of embodiment and then um i'm forgetting the other axis already but um but that you have these uh these boundaries that things move between um that sort of um that excite different emotions in people um but I think this is probably when you told me Climate Lounge, I was like, ooh, I've got a bit on that. Um, and so that was this quote, uh, which is, uh, of this civilization, little will remain but the scars that it has inflicted on the natural environment. Um, islands of plastic across the oceans, garbage dumps, nuclear spills, man-made deserts will be the only rhapsodes left to sing the life and the metaphysics of billions of people and to testify for their legacy. And so I think that sort of like, this sort of elegant, elegiac um approach to worlding to say like we are mourning this world and trying to imagine beyond it um is is kind of the essential move of this book um and i think there's also the idea that there's also this idea of data loss right and the data loss between civilizations and so like this idea that um Yes, Justin Bieber might wind up being like, <laughs> might might wind up being like the core of the next world, and like we mourn that too. But in the meantime, we're going to try to package things for these adolescent cultures to stumble upon as well. Um, and uh, I love that. I I recently was a a member of a jury on interactive at the international documentary film Amsterdam IDFA, and one of the pieces that that our jury selected to win was this piece of VR piece called Plastisapiens Sapiens about how we are, you know, obviously coexisting inside our bodies with microplastics <laughs> and uh, imagining a future where we become these Plastisapiens. Sapiens. Like we, we embrace our plasticity and then it kind of collides with uh, 
plastic uh, uh, gender as as a lot of the cyber feminists have have defined it. And so kind of just imagine this future of, of hybrid plastic humans, which was like really terrifying and weird <laughs> and wonderful. It was a really great uh, virtual reality piece. But I think a lot about that, about um, we will have a layer in our stones that is plastic, you know, we'll have a, a layer in DNA that will be commingled with plastic. Um, mm. All all of our DNA is being changed because of plastic. It's like very f fascinating. We talk about the Anthropocene, but I feel like there'll be like a plastic, <laughs> plastic, you know? like, that is the Anthropocene is our plastic that we have created. But the, um, plastic is made of largely petrochemicals and uh, fungi can actually digest it and change it into its um, atomic structures again. And so, I don't know, the world belongs to the plastic and the fungi, I guess. You know? <laughs> that's so, yeah, I think that's probably another, um, I forget where I got this exercise, but like the, I think one way to break yourself out of like, to break yourself out of the Anthropocene is like to imagine like a big room, a relatively large room, maybe ballroom. And just like each person that walks in is a different generation of your family, notionally. And then ask yourself like how many how many people walk in before you hit a quadruped? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then if you play the game forward, like how many people walk in that are recognizably human? Yeah. Um and um, and then I think, like, for me, the adolescent culture that I most often am, am imagining is uh, Earth in 2100, at least as far as uh, as accurately as we've been able to project, um, which we'll find out in 80-ish years, um, is the total population is estimated to be around 11 million. Um, 4.7 billion of those people are going to be Asian. Um, of some description, <laughs> um, and 4.3 billion of those people are going to be African of some description. Um, and then there's like, you know, maybe like 1.3 billion people left. But like to that adolescent culture, if we've already, like, I mean, one, I think there's, there's this, there's this weird, there's this weirdly mournful utopia about it, which is like, well, if they're an adolescent culture, what does that mean? That means this culture has collapsed. Perhaps they're not dealing with white supremacy. Perhaps. <laughs> we'll see. No. Um, that doesn't survive the collapse. Right. But like, you know, what um but that is, you know, that's that's a world, right? And if we think about like what we know of climate change, okay, well, who's gonna be dealing with that at that time? What are the decisions that we're making today that that, that are gonna fall on them? Um, and I think that's um that's sort of part of why this book's framing was so useful to me. And then I also think that there is a, um, there's a dead spiritual core of, I think the, I'll say this for the, for the futures producing world, right? That one, there's an incredible imbalance. So for instance, you know, I've, I've worked for a few years, um, as a corporate futurist and like the amount of energy and uh the amount of energy and just brain hours that are going into producing like you know this frankly fiction right that um all of these enterprises will continue that all of 
the technological, um, you know, all the technological progress we do will be captured for economic surplus that all of the innovations we will bring will be accepted, right? Um, we will find whatever shape we can accept them in order, you know, to make them as palatably exploitable as possible. Um, and, um, and that this, and then, you know, the, the larger fiction, you know, beyond that is that this is the best sort of world we could live in. This is the best sort of world we can give you to imagine. Um, and so I think there's an enormous amount of work that's already been poured into those futures, right? Um, and, you know, for people like me that want to eat, the, the likelihood that your next future is going to be in service to that is, is incredibly high. But um, so like one, how do we really open up a world of public access, public interest futures? Um, how do we sort of offset, you know, for, uh, for, you know, for people in the priest class of the future, like me? Um, how do we offset that footprint that we've sort of generated by, uh, by selling, you know, our imagination, our imagining hours, right, to these, uh, to these corporations? And then how do we like what is required, you know, in the field of foresight, which, you know, used to be more comfortable being called futurism, like, I would say the entire, the entire theoretical history of this field is squirreling away from the term prophecy, you know, um, just finding new ways to be like, no, we're not these, you know, we're not these crazy woo woo people. Um, we deserve to be taken seriously. So refer to us as strategists, refer to us as anything but this term prophecy. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. One, um, just the allergy to religion we've developed. I think two, there's, uh, like I said, there's this really shriveled, this really shriveled moral heart of certainly American life, but like of our civilization, right? Um, and and what we've been willing to accept at different times and i think that one calling naming the practice prophecy naming the the sort of aims of the practice a prophetic culture right is like there is a certain weight to that still right all of the all of the architecture of belief right that goes into our marketing products that goes into um that goes into all of these things right like they have like deeply religious legacies, and those have um, those have more robust muscles for the moral uh, for the moral angle of it, right? For how we deal with death, for how we consider ourselves um, as a finite species, right? Um, that secular, you know, secular um, secular culture has none of that, right? Um, and I think when we are when most of when the Oculus narrows to all the different opportunities we have to unalive ourselves and our civilization, <laughs> like um, to to be in a a cultural setting in which that's not mentionable, right? In which the oh, what did this all mean? Is is not something we can actually like wrestle with um, um, because we need to stick to the pragmatics, you know, for whatever reason. I think is a real impoverishment of. The, the whole point of futurity, the whole point of being able to um, consider alternatives, right, to the way that we live. Um, and so I think one, the, this, this, this way of collapsing the ancient and the machine, um, of collapsing sort of um, 
modernism and and post postmodernism whatever we've decided we're on now but like this real i think responsibility right of people of our generation to lay our civilization to rest right um and then also right the real responsibility that i'm feeling you know somebody who's considering becoming a parent and things like that uh to offer you know something to uh, future generations. I think, you know, ever since my entire economic life <laughs> as a person has been happening in some stage of crisis, you know, um, and then, you know, when I talk to a friend from Mexico and they're like, man, inflation, like we've had that for generations, <laughs> like we're good. Um, uh, but, you know, to to be able to break out of that, right, and, and speak at the civilizational scale um, and, um, and, and to do so, I think, to do so uh, in a spirit of hope, right? In a spirit of service, in a spirit of um, in a spirit of uh, I don't want to call it like a benevolent mysticism, but like to give to to give to our imaginative capacities at least the same benefit of doubt that we give to our religion of statistics today, right? Like that we That's give to point that we we really believe so much in numbers in a way that they are they're most of them you know only a hair away from Amon's quadrant you know in the sense of the way that someone decided to compare two things together and then write a statistical analysis of it and the way that um we we do ascribe to that so much belief and power um and those of us who are statisticians and data engineers and data scientists were like, um, you can make that look like that in a lot of different ways. Like, I want to yeah. show me the code. Really? That that's an interesting uh, word phrase that you used and you used some statistics in it. Um, I was listening to uh, Radiolab the other day and they were talking about people's optim you know optimism the entire episode was about optimism but they alluded to this study that was done in the 80s where they went and um up to new jersey and just interviewed people on the street and they interviewed only about 500 people and they said um how likely is it um that in uh, you know in your lifetime that war will end that we just won't have any more war or maybe not even just in your lifetime just in general do you think it is likely that humans will stop going to war? And it was about 85% positive. Like people were like, yeah, I think we'll, we'll end war, you know, like, and then they did the same kind of study, but with 5,000 people in New Jersey and went on the street and interviewed people in, um, I believe this was, I th episode was maybe in 2019. Um, or maybe, no, I think it might've been during COVID. So they were like, okay, we had to kind of ask people. And we realized that that point in time, you know, maybe people were a little more stressed, but they said, how likely is it, do you think that humanity would, would cease to go to war? And it was completely flipped, you know, in only um, 20 years, people went from thinking that war is inevitably on its way out. We won't, we won't have another one, maybe in their lifetime, we won't have another one to um, people's responses and qualitative responses of saying like, that's ridiculous. It's, 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 innate it's natural it's what humans have been evolved to do and that was so different than in the 80s when people were like yeah i think humans have like evolved past that and we are no longer you know, see that as a way forward and um so I, I do it is interesting that in this moment in our generation we talk so much about um 
the end, right? This is the end. Many people obviously don't want to have children because they're worried about climate change. Or all, We see all these studies and statistics again um, around how uh, unhopeful people are about the future. But it does feel to me somewhat recent, right? It doesn't feel to me like it's taken hundreds of years for us to get here, but more like just a pandemic maybe. I don't know. I don't know if that's, I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, it's recent and it's so manufactured. And it's not to say that like, and so it's recent and it's manufactured, which means that we have that conversation on surface level, right? What if there's actually nothing we can do? The answer is despair and buy some more shit, right? And yeah. like, you know, shock, uh, retail therapy. Um, and like, and and to my mind, like a utopia today, uh, an ethical utopia, I should say, is not we've solved all of the problems, but rather that we're staring at the we as a civilization have decided to stare at the answers or to stare at the solution space and and really propose something and if in fact right if we want to credit that if we want to credit that perspective that there's literally nothing we can do then at least we can put this thing to bed right at least yeah yeah at least if, if and it's kind of maybe saying do you really mean that like if you really mean that how would you want to live then your life right. or are we just catastrophizing um would you rather be catastrophizing or if you're if you take it at face value and say okay yes this is the end then how do you want to live wouldn't you want to put it to bed don't you stop and say okay. that yeah. that capacity is completely lacking in in certainly american culture and so to me it's like there's um so sorry this next this next uh campagna quote is like like we have to help future generations deal with the fact that this this human thing is potentially over right but like as fragile as it is um as uh you know as uh as 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 specious a notion as it is right like if um are we serious about being animals right are we serious about you know um are we are we serious about like continuing to find the energy that it takes um to keep a human alive and like are are we okay with that energy cost exploding and are we okay with the, the effects that that has right on humans and and so um and so uh and so you know this quote in, in particular i think this this idea that like um indeed there exists no other ruin but what survives is as a part of a subject's daily struggle to create a world where life might flourish to create a world where life might flourish whatever fails this task however large and profound its marks might be on the environment cannot be considered the ruin of a lost world but is merely an excremental race um i want well, i just love that phrase it's like well what is you know um one like if we are the progeny of some celestial being, beings. Um, it's just as likely that we are their excrement <laughs> as their uh, as their as their offspring. Um, yeah. But um, but like, what what does that you know? What does that require of us? What does it mean to be the remains? And what what do we actually build out of that? Um, and so I think for me, it's a space. It's a more hopeful space than is offered than. Um, that is typically offered, I think, in either direction, right? Because I think the ways in which we talk about, for instance, climate change, the ways in which we talk about um, sustainable de development goals are, are kind of asinine. Like we really like these, 
these goals are structured to continue a high energy way of life, right? And and therefore like to keep on killing ourselves as slowly as possible, right? Um, until it's undeniable, right? At which point, certainly the behaviors, right, of certain people will change. Like we've, you know, heard very loudly about um, about the exit plans, right, right. Of, of various right. uh, various tech overlords, and so. Um, and so I think providing, I, what I hope to do is to provide that sort of, uh, is to provide that sort of exit vehicle, right? That escape pod for, um, for people from the, the strictures of, uh, of needing to continue producing this world. Um, and again, no solutions, but a place to ask questions. Like I, I don't, I don't, like the ways in which um i don't like the ways in which um it feels quite often that our political imagination is captured or that people with you know credentials right, um can can sort of uh can sort of fall into the habit of the expert you know the expert trap of just like yes this is the best that we know that we can do and we're going to continue trying to produce that knowledge in this way even though you know it has certain failings and so i think opening space up for people to imagine different solution spaces to imagine different um you know different i think different uh burial practices i guess um you know for this civilization um, while they're still living in it, and then also to imagine the lives of, to to imagine the you know the potentially very difficult lives right of the new humans we're spawning, as opposed to just like this denialism of like oh no, things will get right back on track. No, the technical solutions are going to work. It's like well how how do you actually raise um, post-apocalyptic children <laughs> um, in a way, um, and how do you raise them? how do you raise them with the skill, right, to to create a new society? And if that is, for me, that's a more, yeah, a more centered and, and more um, sane space than where I've been the past few years. Um, and so uh, all early days, I, you know, I just tried, <laughs> I just tried this talk out as a guest lecture for the first time last week. So awesome. um, yeah, I'm still working through the book and processing a lot, but uh, but yeah, it's been great to come on here and talk with you. Thank you so much for, for being here. We really appreciate it. I, I really enjoyed working with you on all your Futurist Writers Room initiatives, and, and thank you for sharing your thoughts and um, and part of your lecture with us today. Uh, come back to Climate Lounge anytime. Yahweh uh, yeah, for joining. Thank you. thank you so much. All right. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye.